Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear a Sunday sermon along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. Our second scripture lesson this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. You can find it on page 171 in the New Testament portion of the Pew Bible. For those of us joining us online, the words will appear on the screen. We begin with the first verse of the eighth chapter. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things are made and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family, and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for your living word to us, and for this opportunity to be still in your presence, and to ponder the words that are before us this day. We pray that you will send your Holy Spirit, that in this occasion we'll be led to understand what it is that you would have us know, and equipped by that same Spirit to respond with deeds that bring you glory and honor. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't free. You've got to pay a price. You've got to sacrifice 
for your liberty. When I was in sixth grade, our class sang that song as part of some school assembly. It comes from a group known as Up With People, an organization that was formed in the late 1960s and still exists today. I went looking at their website recently and they described it in this way as a nonprofit that stages song and dance performances that promote multiculturalism, racial equality, and positive thinking. Now, I wouldn't have been aware of that background in 1970, nor would there have been something called a website available for me to look it up. But I still do remember parts of that song as it goes on to proclaim, there was a general by the name of George with a small band of men at Valley Forge. Left the comfort of their home for the cold and ice, they won independence cause they paid the price. And then we sang again, freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't free. You've got to pay a price. You've got to sacrifice for your liberty. I'd like for you to hold on to that refrain in your mind as we turn to look at the two biblical texts before us today, as both of them also talk about freedom and sacrifice. Neither of them is concerned with political freedoms in a nation. And yet they do reveal that as Christians, too, freedom isn't free. The Gospel writing tells of a moment when Jesus and his disciples have returned to Capernaum. That's a small village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee that served as the base of operation for Jesus and his disciples. Soon after they arrived, a local tax collector comes up with Peter and asks this, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? It's an interesting way to phrase it, and it actually demonstrates that there's this larger conversation going on in that culture. For in the first century, there was a strong debate and disagreement among Jews about the obligation of paying a tax to Rome to support the temple in Jerusalem. Some groups in, within Judaism thought that every male age 20 and older had to pay that tax every year, while others contended that it was voluntary or that they simply had to pay it once. So it wasn't a neutral question that Peter was being asked about Jesus, and in response he says to the tax collector, yes, he does pay it. When he gets back to the house, he tells Jesus about the conversation. And as Jesus was wont to do, he used it as a teaching opportunity. As he said, Simon, what do you think? Do all the kings of the earth collect their taxes from their family, from their children, or from others? And Peter said, well, from others. Jesus says, so the children are free. Now, in the context of what they're talking about, Jesus is saying that as children of the one true sovereign, 
they are not required to pay that tax. And had Jesus stopped at that point, Peter might have gone back to that tax collector and said, oh, I misspoke the other day. But Jesus didn't stop at that moment. And instead he went on to say, but so that we do not offer an affront to them, and then tells this creative image of someone who goes fishing and pulls in one fish and in the fish's mouth finds a coin. And Jesus says, take that and give it to them for you and for me. A reading from 1 Corinthians doesn't talk about taxes, but about another matter that was fiercely debated in that early Christian community. And to understand what Paul is talking about there, it's helpful to realize that ancient Corinth was a crossroads in that world. And that meant that there were all kinds of religions being practiced within its boundaries. And oftentimes that meant that there would be the sacrifices on idol, on an altar of meat for that particular God. Some of the flesh would be consumed by the fire, some of it was then taken and given to adherents of that belief system for, they, for their use as part of a party in their home. And then what was left over after that was taken to the market where anyone could buy it. So, question arose among those first century Christians of, should they refuse to eat in the home of someone who's using such meat? Or should they decline to buy and consume it themselves? And so in characteristic fashion, Paul addresses that question head on. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we heard him say. And then he goes on and cites some quotation, truism of that day, all of us possess knowledge. He goes on to say that knowledge, however, puffs up, while love builds up. He continues to say that many of those Christians understand that since these are all false gods, that there really is no problem with them eating that meat. But, he said, be careful as you act upon this freedom, for it could cause others to stumble. He points out that not all of the new Christians understand that distinction yet. And so if they see someone of their own eating some of that meat, that it might make them think that, wait a minute, we thought there was just one God. And so Paul is saying to them, even though that's something you can do in my own decision, I'm refraining from eating such meat, just in case it could cause someone else to stumble in their faith. So, in those two passages, Jesus says they don't have to pay the tax, but they should. And Paul says they could eat that meat, but they shouldn't. Collectively, it's a word that calls for a kind of vegetarian taxpayer. And yet, another way to consider it is to hear that song from my childhood. Freedom isn't free. 
you've got to pay a price. You've got to sacrifice for your liberty. Now, I don't know of any Christian communities today that really argue much about taxes or whether or not meat is permissible. Certainly, all of us want to minimize what we pay to any governmental entity, and we know a lot more about nutrition today, and so some people make the choice not to eat meat for their own reasons. And yet, within the Christian community as a whole, those aren't the kinds of things that people tend to lift up anymore as, as major points of disagreement. And so when I was first pondering these two scenes, I, I was kind of stumped to think, well, what, what would be a ready comparison today to that temple tax or to the eating of meat sacrificed to idols? And then it occurred to me that instead of a particular issue, what both Jesus and Paul are talking about is a kind of understanding of our freedoms and to use our freedom in particular ways. For Jesus said, yes, you can refuse to pay that tax, but think of the impact it will have on others. And Paul said, yes, you'd be absolutely right in knowing that there's no problem in you eating a meat dedicated to some false god, but why would you do that when that's going to harm a fellow believer? And so what we have from both of them is this call to use our freedoms in ways that always build up, which means that sometimes it involves sacrifice still. Think, for instance, of the ways that Christians sometimes can find themselves so convinced they are right about some issue in the church, in the world, you can pick it. They're so right about their conclusion that they feel it is their task to convince others of their truth. It's the kind of thing that certainly can happen in any number of settings. And over the years, as your pastor, I have often encouraged a different kind of response. One of of growing in confidence of your own understanding of what God would want you to do, but to always acknowledge the limited capacity any of us has, and thus to have a kind of humility as we stay in relationship with others who read the same Bible and draw different conclusions. It's the kind of thing that we know isn't something people always do. Like many of you, I have grown weary of all the revelations that Prince Harry has been offering <laughs> about life in his family and behind those ancient walls. There has been that Netflix documentary series, countless interviews before and since, and now an autobiography has just been published. And it does strike me as really ironic that while in one moment he's appropriately complaining about the invasion of his privacy by the media, 
that he's been the very one who has been sharing what in many cases heretofore were not widely known. It also seems unlikely to me, as, as I have read or heard just some of it, that the reconciliation he is hoping for with his father and brother will be a long time in coming. In this particular book that I haven't read, it tells of all sorts of things about his life, including now his assessment of faith. Harry describes himself as spiritual but not religious, which is a sharp contrast to his grandmother, whose devout Christian faith shaped her sense of duty as queen for all of those decades, and stands in sharp contrast to one of the roles of his father, King Charles III, who is now the royal governor of the Church of England. Harry, of course, grew up attending worship services, but at least according to an article I read a couple of days ago, drawing from the book, a break happened after his mother's death. For Dominic Green said this, Prince Harry was 12 when his mother died in a car crash in Paris. The Christian rites at her funeral in Westminster Abbey couldn't console him. His only regular contact with the Bible came when a teacher, punishing teenage misdemeanors, delivered what Harry describes as a tremendous clout, always with a copy of the New English Bible. This, Harry writes, made me feel bad about myself, bad about the teacher, and bad about the Bible. Certainly that unnamed teacher was not the last one to use his own knowledge, what he viewed with certainty in a way that failed to build up. It's the kind of thing that happens still in families, in congregations, in entire denominations, when, when people will conclude that they are right, and they may be, but in fact it ultimately leads to division. And whenever that happens, to me it's a sad outcome, and one that is so contrary to these words that we have heard today from Jesus and from Paul who spoke about how these freedoms that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ by necessity include moments when we must sacrifice for the benefit of others. Shortly after World War II ended, the World Council of Church decided to send out some representatives to see how their funds were being used in the massive rebuilding effort underway in Europe. And they sent three ministers to, on a trip to the Balkan Peninsula, a man named John Mackey, who was president of the Church of Scotland, and then two other ministers who are described as being from a rather severe and pietistic denomination. They went to visit one day an Orthodox priest in a small Greek village, and he was thrilled to welcome his guests. He brought out a box of Cuban cigars, 
which certainly had to have been a rarity immediately after the war, and offered them to his guests. Dr. Mackey took one, bit the end off, with it, took a few puffs, and pronounced it was wonderful. And the priest offered it to the other two ministers, and they said, no, we don't smoke. Fearful that he had somehow offended his guests, the priest removed himself from the room for a minute and came back with a flagon full of his best wine and offered it to the three ministers as well. And Mackey took a glass, he sniffed it like a connoisseur, he took a sip of it, declared it wonderful, and after finishing, asked for a second glass. And when the priest offered the wine to the other two ministers, they said, no, we don't drink. Soon afterwards, the visit came to an end, and the three ministers are riding in the jeep at this bumpy road out up the hill from this village when the other two ministers turn on John Mackey and they say, Dr. Mackey, do you mean to tell us that as president of the Church of Scotland and representatives of the World Council of Churches, you smoke and drink? Mackey lost his temper. And he said, no, I don't. But somebody had to be Christian. Freedom isn't free. Words that were certainly echoed by the founder and the first proclaimer of our faith. Proclaiming to the people in the first century and to you and me that there are these moments when there are freedoms that we enjoy which have to be sacrificed in order to build up the faith and witness of others. And that that task is one that we can readily and gratefully accept because we all serve that one who paid the price, who made the ultimate sacrifice for our liberty. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for the life and witness of your Son. And we celebrate those moments, imperfect as we are, when we grasp the truth and are able to act upon it. We confess those times that you already know, namely when even if we have the truth, we miss what it is that you would have us do in response to it. And so pray that you will help us, imperfect people that we are, to continue growing in hearing your call and acting in ways that bring you glory and honor. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.